When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, this is Kevin Lindsay. I have the honor of getting to co-host Systems and Cybernetics here on the New Books Network, along with my friend Tom Schult. Over the last few months, I have become fascinated about the origins of systems thinking and cybernetics. I have had the great fortune of talking to experts like Magnus Ramage and Martin Reynolds about some of the greatest systems models and systems thinkers of our time. It was my conversation with Tyson Yonkaporta, however, that got me thinking about systems origins that might go back a lot further than 100 years. Who were the original systems thinkers after all? I'm beginning to think everything we have to learn from systems thinking today has its roots in traditional wisdom. In this conversation with Joseph M. Cole about his new book, Buddhist and Taoist Systems Thinking, The Natural Path to Sustainable Transformation, I explored this further. Cole describes this work as a radical new conception of business and management. Since that's the world I come from, I was intrigued to understand, first, what exactly Cole meant by Buddhist and Taoist systems thinking, and second, how it might be an alternative, or at least complementary, to today's business leadership and operational practices. As you'll no doubt tell, I loved this conversation with Joseph as we explored concepts like the Gaia organization and Zen business model. I left the conversation excited to bring a little business mindfulness back to my day job. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation and will be inspired to check out the book for yourself. Hi there, this is Kevin Lindsay, co-host of Systems and Cybernetics on the New Books Network. And today I am really thrilled to be in conversation with Joseph M. Cole, author of Buddhist and Taoist Systems Thinking, The Natural Path to Sustainable Transformation. Buddhist and Taoist systems thinking explores a radical new conception of business and management. It is grounded on the reconnection of humans with nature as the new competitive advantage for living organizations and entrepreneurs that that aspire to regenerate the economy and drive a positive impact on the planet in the context of the Anthropocene. Joseph Cole is a professor of strategy, sustainability, and innovation at IATA, Business School, visiting professor at Yonsei University in South Korea, and research associate at Maastricht School of Management. He works as an independent consultant for a wide range of private and public organizations, such as the European Commission and the United Nations. In the United Nations system, he co-led the first corporate developmental evaluation and adaptive management movement in UNFPA. He regularly speaks internationally on sustainable transformation and coaches organizations, managers, and entrepreneurs in transitioning to the new sustainable, regenerative, and inclusive business business paradigm. Joseph lives just outside of Barcelona and has access to nature. He loves to be in the wilds, hiking and enjoying nature and, uh, and meditating in that environment. He also, in contrast, likes to play the drums and electric guitar, which he also would describe as a meditative practice. So I am really thrilled to have you with me here today. Joseph, welcome. Thank you so much, uh, Kevin. Thank you so much and a pleasure to be here. And thank you also for inviting me. Well, that is my pleasure. And congratulations on the new book. It is just, I think, a couple of months since you since you launched it. And um, I have had the opportunity to read it and really dive into it. And I am excited about this conversation. The first question I'd really love to um, dive into with you is one we always ask on this podcast, which is really what drew you to systems thinking 
Uh, how did you get to really where you're at today? Just tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, sure, Kevin. Well, it's a, it's a long story, but I'll try to make it short. <laughs> you know, uh, I was, um, um, well, uh, to me, I consider I'm a scientist. Uh, I also, I'm also a scientist. I consider myself a scientist and, and I wasn't educated under this, uh, you know, this Cartesian paradigm, you know, that uh, based on rationality, you know, linear logic, uh, you know, uh, in trying to understand the reality made up of causes of uh, a cause and effect, you know, relationships of cause and effect. And and then all of a sudden, I ended up in Asia. You know? I, I started uh, living in South Korea. And uh, after a couple of three years in South Korea, I was very much interested into, into the original philosophy that was very much ingrained in that uh, part of the world, you know? into Buddhism, into Taoism. And, um, and I started practicing Zen. At that time, uh, I was consulting uh, you know, uh, on international business, especially European businesses that wanted to land in South Korea, also China and Japan. I started my PhD. I started also digging up into international development issues. And I was like uh, separating two fields. No? On one hand, I was doing my job. Mm. And on the other hand, you know, I was practicing Zen. The, the Zen my entry point to, to Zen was actually, and for me, Zen is something that I learned there. It's the symbiosis between uh, Buddhism and Taoism, which is very interesting, you know, uh, how, how they came to get to know each other eventually. You know, after Bodhidharma traveled from India to China, they liked each other. They realized they shared the same principles, and they started developing intricately. You no, know? it was like an interwoven relationship between the two. And uh, so, so I got uh, so much into Zen. To me, at that time, I was, I was very stressed. I was suffering from from stress, uh, and uh, I had even some panic attacks, uh, panic attacks there. And to me, Zen was like you know, like a moment that I had to to relax, to calm down, and from. From there on, I realized that just was only the surface, you know. So I was digging up uh, with the Zen practice, with the meditation, with also reflexive uh, uh, and reflective meditation, and the, the two worlds were getting closer and closer. Mm. And until I got like a couple of insights, but one of them was when uh, when we were discussing and practicing the concept of oneness, no, which which is fundamental in, in Taoism, but it's always very close to the, the the idea of Buddha, no, which is the the the, the connection with that uh, universal wisdom we all have inside, no. And it's curious because there was one 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 way to define human beings that really resonated with me, which uh, uh, my Zen uh, master uh, ha- had a way to say that. Uh, we are humans are a small universe you know and, right. and as in a small universe uh, if we pay attention to ourselves we are going to get the whole information contained in the universe no? so and that's actually the primary contribution we later can develop to collective intelligence so so at that point uh, I, I was drawn to systems thinking i didn't know at that point kevin that systems thinking was such a discipline you know from a scientific point of view mm-hmm. uh, and i came also to realize that actually tao is where the the, the earliest systems thinkers you know which uh, concept I, I developed in the book and and to me was uh, i started then you know from a scientific uh, using my scientist my scientist <laughs> together with my uh, system thinker uh, profile, you know, uh, and I saw that there was, uh, you know, a complementary way to look at them, you know, and to make them work together. So from, from, from that day on, I decided to bridge these two worlds and also to start applying, you know, the, uh, this, this world of more this, let's say, Buddhist and Taoist system thinking to science, to management, to the work I was doing. And, and well, that the book is the result uh, of this journey, you know, who, uh, which started, uh, 15, well, uh, 16 years ago, actually. <laughs> Well, and it is it is very clear as you're reading the book or as I was reading the book, I, I felt like I was on that journey with you as you're describing a lot of the ways that you thought about these concepts and, and applied them in your work and your consultancy. And um, and at, um, at one point you um, describe the book as a toolkit. And I really felt like I, there was a lot of stuff I could could take and and apply. And um, so I, you know, I was really excited to talk to you maybe in another conversation about how I could bring some of these concepts to my work context, my, my day job, so to speak. Um, one of the things that you uh, introduce us to early in the book, right in your introduction, is this idea of the consciousness gap. 
and I thought that was a really great way to maybe start this conversation. You describe yourself as coming from that that Western model. You were a scientist. You know, you had this uh, Cartesian orientation, and then you were exposed to some of these concepts quite you know, serendipitously as a result of, you know, your need to really take care of yourself. So as you started to um, look at at the systems that uh, you were in and, and the ways that, that science has approached problems and uh, has kind of tackled different issues over time, I'd really love you to talk about that uh, that gap. I mean, you describe an oversimplification. And if I can quote you, you say, system science does not take into consideration the subjective experience of the observer for healing and transforming the system. So going into this just a little bit more, like what, what did you specifically see that you really felt um, could could benefit by by bringing the, the, the Buddhist and Taoist concepts into, um, I guess, more conventional work, management, etc.? Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, well, um, for me, the consciousness gap is actually, uh, I would say, the main reason, you know, the purpose of this book, you know, trying to bridge, yeah, trying to bridge. Let, let me also emphasize, uh, Kevin, now that you also give me this opportunity to speak here, um, that I, um, I don't, pre- I didn't pretend to write a, a Buddhist and Tao, a Taoist uh, scholarly treatise, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I, probably you could get that, uh, that, 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 that feeling uh, reading the book, uh, where I'm, I'm offering my perspective. No, I mean this is this is a universal wisdom, and and there are multiple perspectives on that. No, so it's it's a book written by a practitioner who later, who later thinks reflects upon this. No, and also theorizes right uh, based on experience. So right. So um, based on that, the consciousness gap, as you said, no, there's there's a risk sometimes. Also, uh, actually, system for me is a root word for complexity. No, so we are in a uh, in a very complex world. Some people call it the book world. No, the others. Uh, Turbulent, uh, turbulent, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 hyper um, complexity. Different ways, uh, and and any way you call it, um, we have a lot of wicked problems uh, that are contextualized under the Anthropocene. You know, this human-made era that is producing rapid geological, ecological, economic, social changes. You know, and we are the main ones. And this comes because of there's a disconnection between human and nature. Although humans are nature. Uh, but uh, we somehow, because we are in a cycle, I do this analogy. You know, in Buddhism, says that there's uh, the cycle. We are tracking the cycle of samsara, you know, which is the the, the cycle of uh, birth and death. Right. So um, a little bit, we are trapped in the cycle of production and consumption. You know? <laughs> so we right. we are socially organized around the idea of work. You know, to be productive. You know, to and so that we have uh, uh, a way of living. You no, know? and uh, so we earn our. Uh, salaries and based on that then we have developed also a leisure culture which is based on uh, around the idea of consumption so so and and by pursuing this we certainly disconnected you know from from our true nature so to meet a consciousness gap uh, when we approach uh, the problems we have which are complex um, those 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 problems are approached through a scientific lens which does not integrate the feelings of the observer and to me, that's essential. And, and I, uh, so the observer has a consciousness. No, any participator and any observer is a change maker. So as such, it has the opportunity to influence the system in any way. Even doing nothing is a way to influence the system in which we live. No, so yes. to me, that was a revelation, uh, a, a huge revelation, Kevin. So, so to me, and, and just to, to end up with this, eh, um, uh, bringing uh, Buddhism and Taoism offer us a way to liberate from this cycle and and to upgrade our level of consciousness so that we also can be an active uh, uh, change maker. So uh, a true source for transforming the systems we we operating thank you for that and you know i i that was really an important takeaway for me early in the book i was looking for how do i think about this in the in the context of 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 systems and cybernetics and you know as we as we know in in second order um, systems thinking you know we put the observer right in the in in that system and I guess what what um, it kind of struck me was maybe we're doing that, but but that observer is unprepared or doesn't necessarily have the the tools to to be uh, a participant. 
And so what struck me was just that, you know, a lot of the concepts that, that you that you talk about maybe and better enable us to, you know, have that you know, impact to be able to make those decisions that you that you talk about in 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 the book um, more effectively by by tuning in and at a slightly different level. You know, you you I appreciate that you said that this is not a um, a, a scholarly piece on Buddhism, Taoism, um, but I think it might be kind of important at this point for for listeners who might be less familiar with with these uh, practices and these traditions to maybe just give a little bit of a primer um, on on some of the principles that kind of run through the the book there were there were quite a number of them i'll i'll, I'll leave them to you to to decide which ones you, you feel are, are maybe most important to bring up right now in this in this in this conversation but uh i i appreciated that you you know you just mentioned samsara right now and that was a concept that was new to me and so there are a few of these that that i, I felt like are are quite important. Could you maybe just talk about a few of those that you feel are they run through the book and it's kind of important for people to understand them a bit? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, well, um, I, I will start by one, to me, that's the central principle and, and which is the one um, which maybe is entering also the organizational management lexicon and that's interdependence. Mm-hmm. And I said that because uh, I saw um, uh, the B Corp movement you know that that is uh, speaking about interdependence. So it, by interdependence is the principle that you know everything is connected and everything is related. That's one thing. But behind that, to to grasp, you know, one one thing is to theoretically, intellectually, you know, think about understand that you no, know, that everything is interconnecting. Uh, some people may say that's obvious. The other thing is feel the interconnection, and here is where the complexity comes in. You know, for example, no, I, um, uh, I, I have the assumption that, that if we feel that we are part of the world, we are likely to treat it better. And somehow we are still part of a, a, a socioeconomic system, you know, which is extractive by nature, you know, that exploits human and natural resources, you know, in exchange of a profit. So we are so much disconnected and somehow feeling we are part of nature, feeling the interdependence uh, among all the, the elements that set up our systems. To me, uh, that's one of the main principles uh, that are shared between Taoism and Buddhism. And, uh, but, and then here I will introduce two other principles which are closely related. Huh? So one is uh, the principle of emptiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, emptiness, which the word in English, um, I don't think combis, you know, the original uh, right. uh, uh, term in Chinese or even Sanskrit, right? But, um, but emptiness means empty, being empty of a separate self. Which is impossible, so that everything, so we are full of everything, no? And I'm here par- paraphrasing the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, who has a beautiful, a beautiful book that explains the concept of uh, interdependence and emptiness through a word that he calls interbeing, no? The yeah. uh, master Han says, we are, we don't be, we interbe, no? And mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more, you know? But for, for getting to feel interdependence, it's very important that we practice emptiness, which is a process in which we detach from our egos. Uh, we are very much dominated by uh, our egos because uh, the socioeconomic system puts a lot of pressure on us to find an, ad- an identity since ber- uh, very early on, you know, in our childhood, where we are from, uh, the things you like, you know, where do you study, uh, where do you work, which networks you empathize with, uh, which football club you support, you know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, race, gender, we are very much put under a lot of pressure, you know, to define ourselves in relation to identities so and here we are inflating our egos no when you have to sell your talent if you're looking for a job or if you are selling your own uh, entrepreneurial uh, uh, skills and professional talent to others so we have first to start thinking what differentiates us from others so this is a process of separation right right so our identity, uh, our pressure to, you know, define our identities is what really separated us from, from the interdependence principle. So now we have to unlearn this thing by practicing emptiness. And to practice emptiness, we need to suspend our, uh, not our feeling, but our judgment for a second. 
so that we can connect deeply with what really unites us all, which is, which is the fundamental universal value, which is love, which is compassion, which is the desire to be happy. You can go everywhere, different cultures, different people, you know, different identities. And this is the common thread you know, that unites us as humans. What is different is the different ways to arrive to, to that place you know, where we feel, let's say, happy or harmonious or uh, peaceful, you know, different ways of saying that. But I think the, the audience will grasp you know, that, the, the meaning when, when we feel really quiet and healthy and peaceful and in peace with ourselves. So that, that would be the principle of emptiness, which is the entry point to feeling the interdependence of all things. And then it comes the fundamental one, which is oneness. Uh, it's mm-hmm. also the, it symbolizes or reflects the essence of the Tao. No, the Tao is the thing that cannot be named. So we are talking right now, Kevin, about an idea of Taoism. No? Or, uh, uh, so uh, we cannot talk about the Tao. It's something <laughs> Lao Tzu says in the Tao Te Ching. No? So we are talking about the idea of the Tao, <laughs> which, is, which is different. No? But, but, but we love talking about that because it's, it's a way that makes us uh, you know, more empowered to walk this way and, and start this journey. So oneness would be those, those uh, insightful moments where we feel part of everything. You know, when we look at ourselves and we say, oh my God, we are everything. No, we are that small universe. And then when we, good, when, when we look outside ourselves, we feel so small because we are part of something which is huge. No? So that would be the, the principle of oneness intricated with interdependence and emptiness, which for me are the three fundamental principles that are shared between Taoism and Buddhism. I, I, I love that. And, you know, I wish I'd been with you when you had this, like, oh, my God, a, a epiphany when, when you, you know, you went, these were the earliest systems thinkers, by God. You know, the, you know all, all of these concepts are so important. Um, I had the opportunity to talk to uh, Tyson Yonkaporta, who is the author of Sand Talk, um, a little while ago. And I came out of that conversation going, wow. Those, those elders that he's talking about, they were the original systems thinkers. So, it, it, you know, what, what it just tells me is that, um, you know, the, uh, the, the wise elders, uh, the, the indigenous uh, wisdom, the ancient wisdoms, uh, you know, from thousands of years ago, they, they understood this stuff. Like, they really understood what it, what it, uh, what it takes. And it's only in the last few hundred years that somehow this is, has gotten lost in many cultures and, and uh, particularly in the, in the West. So, you know, I, I, I love that. And I think that's a really good uh, foundation. I really appreciate that you, you helped us kind of level set on these, on these concepts. Um, as we, as we go into the discussion, you spend the majority of the book talking about how these principles can be applied and, and used in, in business as, as part of, of transformation. And, um, you know, I, it's also interesting because I, I think you do a really good job of, of making it, um, it's easy to understand that any kind of organization, such as you know the one I work for, can be you know a purpose-driven or organization. And when when you align that that orientation with with how you do the day to day and and executing your in your business, um, you really can a- achieve some of these sort of higher level aspirations. I think you you outline so nicely in the book, and I'd like to get into that. Um, you've got some really practical, interesting um, ideas, but let's just first talk about the, you know, the the emergence of a new business paradigm. You really kind of propose that that uh, you know there are ways, you know, something that you um, some work that you've done around the the Zen business model um, over the years that um, that really you know it's it's so clear you've 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 had some really interesting. Um, interactions with with businesses and and organizations and experience sort of bringing this. And I, I'm really curious, and I think the listeners would be also curious to um, really get a picture from you um, on what that looks like and and some of the response that that you've you've had to these these principles. 
Mm, well, thank you for the question. Uh, uh, let me uh, well, let me start by saying that uh, um, the business, the new business paradigm. Uh, that's why I, I I call it in the book is emerging. No, it's something that it right. is it is shaping, and I think that's important. No, so it's it's. Uh, I mean, I think we are uh, I, um, we are in a, in a kind of interregnum. No, with all ways of doing, all ways of thinking. Uh, are uh, are dying, and uh, new ways of doing, new ways of thinking are getting born. But 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 we still you know we still don't see the face how how those new ways look like. So so that creates a lot of uncertainty because we are normally uh, uh, accustomed. You know, we are used to 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 do the things we are told, right? So and to see the things as as they look like. So we are living away, and 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 I think that that has been accelerated. You know that feeling with the COVID pandemic. So in which it's very uncertainty is everywhere. So some. Sometimes I think that everyone listening will resonate with the fact that sometimes, you know, we need, we want data to make decisions, but sometimes we don't have data and we still have to make decisions. And sometimes we even have contradictory evidence, you know, and, and yet we have to make decisions, right? Right. So, so, um, so I think uh, I'd like uh, uh, to frame, you know, the, the emergence of this new business paradigm in that transition, in that interregnum. So you, you're going to see uh, uh, companies that are still doing the old ways, that still see uh, a company uh, um, following uh, an organization as a, mat- a machine metaphor, no? Which was a... Uh, 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 um, uh, an, an understanding that was very much entered by Frederick Taylor at the beginning of the 20th century. You know? so, and this is actually, I studied business administration and management in the 90s, and, and I actually got this you know, from, my, from my teachers and professors. Yes, Taylorism. <laughs> Exactly, and and I went I went to work I went to the industries you know uh, with this mindset you know right. but then um, you start realizing that uh, there's a new business paradigm uh, that bring other principles you no know? and one of them for example uh, is seeing the organization as a living system uh, why because it's 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 shaped it's made by humans uh, by human beings that are, that in, they are alive so when you look at an organization as a living uh, system um, as a living organization uh, i mean uh, you you can no longer keep working under the same premises so the emergence of the new business paradigm is not something new uh, it's emerging since since the 60s so that information is already there it started uh, specifically with the countercultural revolution in the 60s uh, actually in the US and then it's been it's been you know uh, evolving until now so the information we have is not new what is new is that more and more people are having this information and in different sectors, in different realms, you know. And a uh, hundred years ago, the way we had to evolve, because this is not the first uh, change of paradigm we live, it's the eighth one. Uh, and uh, so so the changes of uh, paradigm or paradigm shifts, as, as Thomas Kuhn uh, calls, uh, calls them, um, this one is different because this one is shaped by a lot of people. So it's all the mass says it's us who have the responsibility who are becoming enlightened and let me use this this Zen word you know right uh, and and who decide to take action before it was like the knowledge of a guru no that was followed by the masses but the power you know was residing in the hands of very few people and now it's uh, the the power uh, is a centralizing is decentralized across the network which is different <laughs> So I think that's that's an important feature of this new business paradigm. Yeah, yeah, and you know, in that chapter, um, which you call Dow 4.0, uh, it's a it's a it's a great chapter, and you know, I, I read it a couple of times. For me, in in the organization um, where I spend most of my time in the industry, where where I've, I've spent uh, 25 years, we really pride ourselves on being a data driven organization. You know, we 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 make our decisions based on a you know data driven operating model, DDOM. We 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 call it, and you know you you talk about. Um, that ability or capacity to gather and organize information based on data and evidence. And yeah, I'm all about that. But really, how do we balance that with that intuitive knowledge uh, in an interactive and synergetic fashion? It feels like there's, um, it's a little bit taboo, isn't it? In, in many organizations, uh, going on gut feel or, 
I don't know, just a hunch or insights that don't come from the, the data or the, the, the models or our dashboards um, are not so welcome in, in many organizations. So, and, and in the book, you do say this is, this is emerging. This is something that isn't necessarily going to resonate with some organizations. Um, what have you seen in terms of, of, of willingness to sort of bring in perhaps other, other ways of knowing into decision-making? Um, a, a concept that you do uh, also introduce us to in the book is, is Wu Wei. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe talk a little bit about that and, and, uh, yeah, explore my, my question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, great question. Uh, well, and then this is something, you know, um, uh, Kevin, I, I suffer every day because I'm, uh, for example, I'm, I'm, let me introduce this with an example. Okay. So I, uh, one of my main clients is the United Nations and, and, uh, I'm colluding with a colleague of mine, um, uh, a process of change of transforming the management system there in, in one of the agencies. And and actually, you know, UN UN is uh, an evidence based organization, so it's data driven, and and and, uh, and indeed, you know, is very accountable to the donors and even and also the beneficiaries, uh, uh, you know, at all levels. So, so uh, they just created a resource based management system in which uh, um, decisions are driven by data. But um, it, it, uh, they they find a problem, which is sometimes data is not available, and they still have to make decisions. So, how do we do from from <laughs> from that point on so uh, knowledge creation is uh, uh, has different sources of uh, of information so one is data and of course and and I, and, and I, uh, I love data <laughs> uh, but sometimes it's not enough so we have to set up in place mechanisms in which people uh, people are empowered you know to uh, to sense uh, uh, the information, to sense what is in here, to grasp the context. Uh, so we have, for example, a tool we developed, which is called context uh, aware monitoring, in order to monitor how programs are implemented. Uh, um, we need also insightful, based and post and reflect practices that put us in a way in which we reflect about how we perceive the reality, what's going on. So and this is an, an Eastern philosophy, Eastern wisdom in, in this case, uh, Buddhist and Taoist systems thinking can really help us a lot uh, uh, by bringing techniques like meditation, uh, like mindfulness, uh, 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 but practice pra- practice uh, uh, in a very genuine way. Huh? So uh, right. purpose-driven practices that may help us int- um, enter into a space in which we can design emerging futures. So we can no longer learn from the, from the past. No, uh, this is the, the realm of data. Uh, data actually is uh, it, it it tries to uh, uh, to develop patterns, you know, uh, but from the past and and sometimes for for in the in the realm in the do- domain of transformation, Kevin, we need to learn from the future, and for mm. that particular reason, the tacit knowledge, personal knowledge, you know, which is very important, which is the root of all knowledge, is something we should develop, and we somehow disconnected from that because of Taylorism and this Cartesian right. paradigm in which yeah. we are educated, you know. Yeah, yeah, I I, I love that, and you know, you, you talk about the, the the quest for balance and 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 harmony in, in this regard, and. Um, and and you talk about something that most of us, uh, uh, you know, if we know if we've heard anything in the past and haven't had our head in the ground, we've we've probably heard of yin yang, um, and uh, and the yin yang theory. You talk about um, yin yang uh, interactive patterns explain the behavior of the whole as a self regulating system, and uh, so it sort of feels like you know that. Um, you know, female, male, yin, yang kind of um, uh, balance in in the decision making, in how we operate and how we how we uh, bring up this, I guess, the, 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 the data and the kind of um, intuition or, and, and so I'm still trying to, you know, you can tell I'm someone who's going, you know, after we're done this conversation, I'm, I'm going to, you know, engage in some other work where I am really looking to, for tips on how I can strike this balance in, 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 in my work. So I'd love you to just chat about that. You know, you, you do talk about some of these concepts like paradox and, and complexity, and maybe some of these things are okay in, in terms of dealing with, with, with some of these uh, contradictions. 
<laughs> yes, definitely. No, I mean, uh, complexity is about that. Huh? Is is about paradox and contradictions. Uh, so we see one thing one way, and another person sees the same thing a different way, and and no one is mistaken. There are different perspectives, you know, and different ways to understand the same reality, and that's fine. That's uh, we are operating under under complexity here, no. But the the, the yin and yang, uh, as, uh, like the Zen business uh, model, those those uh, systemic methodologies, they offers uh, I I like calling them a simplex ways of navigating mm-hmm. complexity. Simplex, why? Because uh, they are complex. But 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 we cannot we can no longer just keep diving into complexity. We need ways, you know, to navigate complexity and to to some extent even to get out of complexity at least for some time. <laughs> yes. You know, or, or or at least to have our minds, you know, uh, at least that they have like a clear sense that well, this is the the direction and that makes sense. At least that. No. So one way is the the yin yang. I develop a, a, a I develop a concept which is called the yin yang creative tensions, which is mm-hmm. um, because the yin yang is actually it's it's a duality that by understanding the duality allows you to turn, to transcend the duality you know? so that uh, every every phenomenon can be uh, expressed in two different ways you no know? the yin and the yang you know? as you mentioned the female and the male the sun and the moon you no know? the night and the day so um, in in business for example in, in organizational management we find a lot of uh, phenomenons that 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 can illuminate the opposite you know? so for example one one way and this is something I see uh, countless times with my clients, you know, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation. We, we started with a yin yang creative tension because they, um, it was a company that, that a company that didn't know how to actually uh, uh, which purpose had to pursue, rather profitability or sustainability. So, so, and there were differing perspectives in the company. So, in the same organizations, people said, "No, no, we have to make sure that the company is profitable first, and then if we are." financially healthy, then we have to devote part of the profit, you know, to set up sustainable practices in the company. And this is a, a, a mental model, which is quite predominant today in companies that have already started transitioning towards sustainability. But but uh, but there was also some uh, insider perspective who, who said, no, no, we have to be sustainable. Our main purpose has to be sustainable. And we have to design new business model that fits mm-hmm. sustainability. Mm-hmm. So you, you can see here the two polarities, right? So when you have illuminated the two polarities, the transformation happens between those two polarities. So that's the right. space for transformation. And this is extremely creative for organizations. This is extremely mm-hmm. transformative. And it's one of the ways we could apply this concept in organizational management. Right. I love that model. And uh, listeners are going to have to obviously look at the book, uh, purchase the book and, 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 and read the book to see the, the illustrations and diagrams that you have in here. Um, but, but yeah, I, I really appreciated, um, the, the polarities that you, that you talk about and, uh, for example, uh, different kinds of beneficiaries. And I know, you know, over, over the years, um, we've, um, we've grappled in business with, you know, customer first, uh, shareholder results, all of those kinds of things. So the company that, that has, you know, this, this nice funding runway to kind of just be, you know, spending like crazy. And then they go public and all of a sudden they have to tighten the purse strings and, and customer uh, satisfaction suffers as a, as a result, because again, they're having to look at profitability and, and shareholder return versus the customer experience. And, and so I, I, there's, there's so much of this that, that really applies to any kind of organization, whether, you know, a profit or, 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 or nonprofit. You also um, bring an, an interesting theory. And this is one that I really was um, loving. And this was the, the five elements and how we can bring this sort of idea of the five elements into, into business. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, sure. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, yes. Uh, the, well, the the five elements. No, the five elements or the five transitioning energies. No, we call it the five elements. But m- maybe the um, a more exact, precise translation would be is the wishing. No, the, the five transitioning energy. It's it's a theory, a well known theory in some domains, uh, scientific domains and disciplines. Like for example, it's the basis for uh, traditional Chinese medicine. It's been applied to geobiology. Also, and to martial arts, you no. Know? And what I do here, 
uh, is actually bringing this theory, and I make the analogy and uh, and the contribution to apply it to organizational uh, development. So that's that's my, my my contribution. I coined this methodology, the Zen business model, but it's actually based on the, these five elements. And 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 to me, and what what I saw practicing this in organizations is that actually it's a way to bio uh, uh, mimicking you know, the cycles of transformation of nature. So in a way, Kevin is like, hey, let's, let's learn from nature and let's apply the natural cycles of transformation into our organization. And, and that's why it resonates so well into how organizations may develop because it's actually how we humans develop along, you know. So, so it has uh, the five elements uh, are uh, converted into five corporate stars, which, yeah. which, which keep are based, are built uh, based on the, 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 the main principle behind each element. And they follow, you know, for having the system, you need the elements, you need the interconnections and the purpose, right? So they follow, they follow uh, the two uh, uh, cycles, two relationships between the elements. One is the cycle of uh, generation. It's the generation of value. So uh, it, it helps you understand how uh, an organization generates and adds value. And the other one is also the control cycle. It, sometimes when you have uh, one corporate star, uh, one area of, or process in the organization, which uh, you have it in, in, in excess, that can also be quite damaging for mm-hmm. other aspects in the organization. So you have like you have a systemic overview on how the organization works. And that gives you not only a diagnosis of how your organization is performing or can be in a certain moment in time, but also give you uh, the, a roadmap on the interventions that you should apply if you want actually, mm-hmm. you know, to, to develop your organization in, in terms of sustainability of regeneration. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty cool model that and very is. practical, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, I can, I could see, uh, you know, certain corporate types, if, if I may use that, that, that term kind of like, wait a minute, this is, this is pretty far out. But, um, when you, when you start looking at like how, you know, these ideas of, um, fire, um, is, is about knowledge, earth, about social relations and, and so on. Um, you, you, you talk about the, the balance and use the term systems disequilibrium that it's very you know it's very easy i think for organizations to fall into that disequilibrium and you know understanding kind of like where you're a little bit out of whack because and and it can change over time like most of the time you know any organization they, they say okay this is our problem like we're doing too much or too little of this and we swing 180 degrees the other direction and kind of overcompensate. And so I, I think just kind of finding that balance, I think that uh, listeners who are interested in, in this area and, you know, who, who work within organizations where, you know, you're, you're, you're managing a, a lot of different demands and, and uh, stakeholder expectations and a lot of different KPIs um, should really look at, at, at this model. It's, it's very interesting. Um, something that also runs, Throughout the, this this portion of the book, where at, at least it, it really hit home for me, you bring up the idea of abundance uh, a fair bit. It's a it's a theme that I I, I noted. Um, you know, the, the there's it, we really need to have this. Um, I, I think within uh, which which star was it that you know the abundance mindset was really important to. Um, water, like the, the element water and, and full profit, like this whole idea of, of full profit. But you also talk um, about abundance in a, in a slightly different concept. Sorry, I'm like dropping, dropping your book. No, no disrespect. <laughs> no problem. Um, but you say um, managing abundance requires a systemic approach to understanding the dynamics of the economic system and identifying those leverage points that, that you that you talked about. So could you spend a few minutes talking about this this abundance mindset because I think that most of us run around with with quite the opposite. You know, we uh, uh, we have this scarcity mindset, not enough of this and not enough of that. So that that's what informs our actions. 
Mm, definitely. Well, uh, it's it's actually quite a rather com- uh, um, uh, co- complex concept, no abundance, uh, and 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 it's a, it's a concept I, I I permanently you know think about it, you know. And uh, to me, um, uh, going to Buddhism and Taoism really helped me uh, trying to understand the meaning of the concept because when when we hear for the first time abundance, no, we associate it to economic abundance, no, and economic abundance automatically is associated to what you said, no, to scarcity. I mean, we compete for. Research. Services. We compete for talent. We compete for this piece of the market. You know, we are competing for everything. We are at the school. Uh, or we play basketball. We love basketball, but it's all about competition, and we get that. No, so, um, so we are so much. You know, uh, immersed in scarcity <laughs> at all at all levels. So, so that when we hear the, the word abundance, is like oh, having a lot of material stuff, and and that's actually. Um, uh, um, something that Buddhism and Taoism actually uh, turns it upside down and says, no, no, actually you feel abundant when you are detached from mm. material stuff, no? So, and then, but then you, you, you deep dive a little bit more on the concept and you find, you find the framework, the framework which I described in the book, which uh, abundance for ta- ta- Taoist and, and, and Buddhist is what it stays at the intersection between space, time, and ourselves, not being. Mm. So being is contextualized under a particular place where we live, right? And also in a particular time. So, uh, and here, the first questions uh, we ask ourselves is, how do we want to live? How do we want to be in that space and in that time? And for example, uh, one of the most scarce resources we have is time, (laughs) right? Especially, uh, I mean, work consumes most part of our time. So uh, our available time without sleeping and eating, I mean, it's probably we spend like 70, 75% of our time working or commuting to work. And so that really conditions how we live. So if you don't do something you really like, you feel really scarce. So having an abundance mindset uh, happens for actually uh, starting uh, as a, a self-assessment process, no, a reflective process in which you ask yourself, how do I want to be here and now? And, and, and to me, that's a starting point. And um, you, you, you look at Buddhism and Taoism, and you see that time is a, is a, very, is a wider concept. Uh, and, and life, uh, it's not just the lifetime. It's not just the available time you spend here in this life, you know, but it also transcends the physical uh, boundaries we have, no, the, which are seen yeah. through our bodies. So it's, it's a very interesting concept. And when you approach, uh, and for companies, and now let, let, me, let me talk about this, when you uh, actually, but this is, this is a, um, a, a personal exercise one has to do. So I recommend to do that for leaders, no, leaders that lead organizations, that managers or for professionals, no, because that changes how you also manage your business, because then you don't, you no longer talk about the, the quantity of economic growth you need, but then you you realize that what you what your company needs or what you need is to qualify economic growth, and and to make it compatible, you know, what the feelings you went through when you were feeling this abundance in this wider sense, you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's a very interesting concept. Uh, it's 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 an evolving concept, but definitely Buddhism and Taoism have inquired about that concept since long, long time ago. And I think we, we can learn so much from them. And, and to, to me, it, it feels like it takes a lot of discipline. I think that our go-to in business and in our personal lives is probably, for most of us, for me anyway, not abundance. It's what am I missing? What do I don't have yet? You know, what's tomorrow going to look like? Because maybe, maybe I'll be able to fill my cup then. Um, and, you know, I, when I start thinking about, hmm, as I, you know, start to do 2022 planning with my team, what would it look like if I approached it from a place of abundance? Like, hey, what, what, what do we have in abundance? What, what is it that, that really we have to, you know, that, that can drive the business that, that we've got that is just, you know, rather than what are we missing? Where, where are we not, you know, meeting our goals, etc. It could be really interesting to explore that. Definitely. I fully agree. So as we start to wrap up the conversation here, um, the last chapter is called um, Business Mindfulness. And uh, you've mentioned mindfulness a a little bit in the conversation. And it's obviously a a, a term that's thrown around a lot. 
these days. And, uh, you know, there are mindfulness apps. In fact, um, I think I've got a couple of them on my, my phone. They're in need of severe updating because I probably haven't opened them in a year. <laughs> but, uh, I'd love you to just talk about that a little bit. Um, you you write that it's the uh, for for businesses, it's that cognitive process by which the organization becomes aware of the impacts generated by its its activities, positive and negative, intended and unintended, and internal and external to the organization. And I kind of went, wow. I mean, all right, that's that's a different, slightly different take on on mindfulness, um, and, and it actually makes it quite uh, real. Something that that organizations could in, engage in. Um, it, it, I, I'm not sure it's something that you know the Headspace app would necessarily prompt me to do. But it, so yeah, I mean, I'd love you to just spend uh, some of our concluding moments here talking about business mindfulness. Yeah, uh, th- thank you for the question, Kevin. Yes, uh, well, um, well, we are used no, and 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 it was also my entry point uh, to mindfulness. I, I was looking for for a Mac mindfulness, you know, <laughs> for for an easy technique that could help me, you know, <laughs> navigate and manage all all those shortcomings I was experiencing, and and it really worked. But um, the the as long as you keep digging upon mindfulness, you realize that the original practice is not detached from from a, a, a deep reflection on what are the consequences of our actions at the personal level. If you apply this to an organization, an organization that wishes to create a positive impact, you know, in the community, in the ecosystem, in in the world, so uh, that that organization automatically uh, has to start asking the questions: Am I um, am I actually achieving my purpose? Am I actually you know producing positive? Uh, results based on you know my purpose, my business activities, my business operations, and how can I know? So business mindfulness is actually uh, the the concept behind uh, engaging into a, a, a process of evaluation in which you ask those right questions and you also measure you know the impact you are having uh, on your stakeholders based upon the purpose that you have. So the purpose is a way you know you clearly state your intentions. But um, and and this is one one problem we have that a lot of companies have a purpose, but few companies know how to actually walk the talk. So that's called the purpose gap. And one way to bridge the purpose gap is actually uh, evaluating whether your purpose has been accomplished or not. And business mindfulness actually helps us in uh, uh, putting the attention on those outcomes, and not only the outcomes, but also the process. Because if we change our purpose, but we are still looking at the same KPIs, how are we going to learn out of this process of transformation? So business mindfulness puts uh, the lens, uh, you know, the lenses towards uh, evaluating and measuring intended impacts, uh, also non-intended, and this can be positive and negative uh, and internal and external. So I think uh, that companies that really state that they are going towards uh, uh, the new sustainable business paradigm, that they are embracing the transition towards sustainability or regeneration and inclusivity, those companies need solid, rigorous uh, business mindfulness processes, evaluation processes in which you don't only measure the impact but you evaluate and learn out of it. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you so much for that. I think that's a that's a great way to end our conversation. It you know it's been it's been fantastic. I think that um, all kinds of listeners are going to benefit from from hearing your words and also from 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 reading your book. So I really appreciate you taking the time to. Uh, talk with me. I could go. I could. I, I wish we could just continue, and maybe we can um, offline. We'll we'll find a way. Um, so thank you so much for for talking um, with me, Joseph. Thank you so much, Kevin, for this opportunity. I really enjoyed uh, this talk. Thank you for your questions and greetings to everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to my conversation with Joseph M. Cole, author of the new book. Buddhist and Taoist Systems Thinking, The Natural Path to Sustainable Transformation. This is Kevin Lindsay, co-host of Systems and Cybernetics. And until next time, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.